Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today we are chatting with Dr. Doris Greenspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, also known as the RNAO. In today's episode, we cover everything from her thoughts on palliative care, how to be fearless, and why nurses should be vaccinated. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Doris. Okay, thank you. So Doris, what we've done on our podcast is to talk about palliative care, but in some ways we're also trying to modernize it. So we're using language that patients and families will feel more comfortable with and integrating it upstream in their care. So not just for end of life. People are so afraid of palliative care. Yeah, okay. Well, Maybe that's... it's our problem more than the people's problem. I think it's both. Um, what well, do you think? I mean, I know what I think. Well, I, 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 I don't think that it should be anything uh, to be afraid of, but nor should it be um, uh, choosing to die with help. And palliative care people have a great degree of difficulty, especially palliative care doctors and some palliative mm -hmm. care nurses, right? Yeah. Uh, big, and I, so I think palliative care professionals sometimes have an issue with death and dying more than people in general, I would suggest to you. I would suggest to you, I remember that we put the proposal already, I put the proposal years ago on a, you know, when, um, when a assisted dying was under discussion, was not even accepted yet, soon after became, uh, but we put a proposal to the Law Society of Canada, you know, they do these papers mm -hmm. on the issue of assisted dying. And then a few weeks later, the ruling was that it was legal, right? And then I said to the Law Society of Canada, well, now for sure we need to address that as part of palliative care because I see it more as a continuum. Some people may choose the assisted dying, some people may not. But if it's there, people are less afraid of talking. Mm -hmm. And palliative care professionals, doctors in particular, I would suggest to you. So I may end up interviewing you more than you and me, than you interviewing me. And palliative care nurses also have more difficulty trying to talk about all of it as a continuum with choices uh, than, than sometimes uh, families. So why do you think that is, Doris? I mean, why do you think healthcare professionals have such difficulty seeing palliative care as part of the continuum of care? So I think that we have, I don't like to use the word medicalized, but we have medicalized, and I mean not just doctorized, medicalized as an institution, right? Mm -hmm. Death and dying way more than we should have ever done. Mm -hmm. um, and I think death and dying is part of the continuum of life. And the trick is to help people live till the last minute. You are, you are dying. You are dying. I am dying. We're all dying. Just by, just by the passing of time, right? 
Plus, we don't know if we will walk in the street and who knows what can happen, right? I think that the approach that we have taken, I, I, I don't mean, I think the approach we have taken is mistaken. I think what we, what we need to, same as with aging, by the way, same as with aging, I think both need to be normalized a lot more. And then what we do, of course, for palliative care is very important that, that you know, those, the, the, the interventions or the approaches, et cetera. And no, they should not be the last few days or hours. In fact, I don't know if you have seen our guideline, the last year of life, right? We have a guideline. You saw the evidence-based guideline of RNO? Yeah, I just actually, I had wished that I had had more time to read it before this interview because I just no realized worries. in 2020, you put out your um, professional guidelines. for. So we had two. So, so first of all, we have, we are the, internationally, we are the largest and most, both prolific, but more importantly used. Mm -hmm. um, guideline developers and implementers and evaluators in nursing mm -hmm. anywhere. There is no other outfit. It's very different than in medicine mm -hmm. where specialties do guidelines, mm -hmm. but there is not really a major, right? Mm -hmm. So we are members of GENE, Guideline International Development, etc. So I can send you more on that. So we used to have one guideline that was particular to the last hours. Mm -hmm. Of, of life, right? Yeah. And we realized that that's not good enough and we did, so we still have that one and we did one on the last year of life. It probably coincided with our broadening of using the term, um, shifting away from palliative being a specialty, but being an approach. And so I think you probably started the guidelines when we began to realize that this is an approach to care. It's a philosophy of care that should be woven in from the time of diagnosis. But, but, but we as nurses, not palliative care nurses, nurses yeah. have always spoken that way about death and dying and about aging and et cetera. I think I will tell you again that I think palliative care as a specialty took it in the wrong approach. And what we did is reclaiming death and dying as part of life and aging as part of life and birthing, giving birth as part of life. All of it has been medicalized unnecessarily uh, with more drawbacks than benefits. Okay, so I think we're on the same page because I'll tell you, Doris, I'm not the most popular palliative care physician amongst my colleagues, and I'll tell you why. Um, the reason is, is because I believe that we made a specialty out of something that should have been just part of good, comprehensive, person, family-centered, needs-driven, good care. We, in the 1960s and 70s, built this specialty yeah. to help care for people who were dying of AIDS and cancer. But it needed to be done to raise awareness around uh, end-of-life care. But what we ended up doing in the following decades, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, we built it into a stronger and stronger specialty, which meant that if you weren't part of this specialty, 
you didn't have to worry about it and you didn't have to do it. And um, what ended up happening is we convinced all other doctors that they don't do palliative care. It's a specialty. And so when you're ready to hand over your patient at the very end of life, at the 11th hour, hand the baton to us, the specialty. And in the last five or more years, I think other doctors and nurses, nurses have always known maybe, but even some in our own specialty are saying, hold up here. This is not a specialty. This is a philosophy and approach to care that needs to be seamlessly woven into care from the time someone is diagnosed. We need to know how to do that dance as doctors and nurses, and our patients should just feel like they're getting very person-centered care. And so some of us are trying to build down the kingdom, deconstruct it, and make it just part of the skill set of all doctors and nurses. Um, and so my specialty, though, thinks otherwise. They believe that palliative care is truly a specialty and that all the rest of you guys can do little bits and pieces of it, but you leave the, <laughs> the specialty to us. So I'm hoping that the work that we're doing will actually, in decades, result in it not being a specialty anymore. So I don't know if I agree with you. So given that you are interviewing me, you ask me yeah. the questions and I will answer, but that, yeah. that is very helpful. I, I think that there is a place for specialty and there is a place for generalized care. I think that uh, same as aging and same as palliative care and same as to a certain extent wound care and same as diabetes care and the same as about everything, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, every single professional, whether that's a nurse, a doctor, a physio, ought to know the basics and the approach and etc. Mm -hmm. But if we didn't have specialties, the in-depth, what the specialty brings is the in-depth expertise on something. But specialties should act especially in palliative care, more as consultants yeah. rather than the doers, right? Yeah. Different in wound care. In wound care, sometimes it's as consultants. Sometimes they need to come and do it because debriding, not every nurse will know how to do debriding. Not every doctor will know how to do debriding, et cetera. So I think depending on the specialty, it's a bit different, right? Um, and that probably relates to many specialties. I think that that, but I think you're right in the sense that it's the specialty that took over, not the other way around. The same, by the way, goes with mental health. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, how do you understand that we do not do now mental health in primary care? Mm -hmm. That kids need to be waiting, I don't know how long, to be seen by a specialist when first and second levels could be seen in primary care. And then if there is more serious situation, then comes the specialist. And we will have better, better access and better results. I, um, I agree with you actually with the consultants um, supporting the generalists. I actually agree with you. But I will tell you just for one second, like let's say you have a cardiologist. 
super smart, specialized, you know, Royal College doctor who understands the heart, um, who knows how to diagnose, treat, do interventions. Sometimes I do scratch my head and ask myself, really, is it such a stretch that in that specialty, in their long residency, they can't be the specialists that also know how to care for the advanced and terminal stage of cardiac diseases. You need to build another specialty. No, and, and, and no same you're with, right. Well, especially that in palliative care, the specialists may not know how some drugs interact with the drugs for the heart of the cardiologist. My whole point, same with respirologists, nephrologists, hepatologists, all of them know these illnesses way better than I do. Please tell me, honestly, they can't learn how to provide expert palliative care and support generalists. Like, so yes, we need consultants right now, but it's because the Royal College doctors don't learn how to do it in their disease specific roles. Anyway, yeah. the yeah. nurses know how to do it. They've always been able to journey with patients and families in a different way than um, doctors have. But and that's the approach, that's the approach. I'm not saying it's good or bad, right? I'm just trying to think with you. Yeah. That is, at the core of the difference, perhaps between medicine and, and nursing to a certain extent. Right? Yeah, what's the difference? The, the, the approach to education that we receive, like how many dogs learn more now than before, okay? The younger ones more, but how many learn about social determinants of health? Mm -hmm. Well, we do, right? Mm -hmm. We know that to take care of someone that lives in a mansion is different than to take care of someone that lives in the street. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I think, well, I am a big proponent that education in general needs to change to have common courses, first of all, for medicine, nursing, and any other health profession. What courses? One that is hardcore, like pathophysiology, mm -hmm. neuroanatomy, whatever that's not a basic one, but pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. So that doctors learn to respect nurses for their core knowledge, for their hardcore knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then one that is more relational, mm -hmm. i.e. Um, person-centered care, mm -hmm. that they all study together so that nurses understand that doctors also have a responsibility in doing person-centered care. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you were to do both joint courses, but also joint clinicals where mm -hmm. they go together, mm -hmm. they will learn also teamwork better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, um, it, it's an issue with education, right? Yeah. I yeah. think it's an issue also with the certificates and all that, but I think it's an issue with entry to practice competencies for both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, but is it also an issue about recognition or respect, maybe even? Because I, we've had so many nurses who listen and write to us and say, we see the problem, we've tried to fix it, but, or we're not given the authority or the mandate to be able to do it. And I do wonder if what your thoughts are about this power imbalance um, between, you were talking about doctors and nurses, but also 
the medical providers and patients and families, and if there's some parallels there. And how do we change that? Um, you know, we use a lot the word end user, right? And I speak a lot with my staff about end user, just parking, parking lot for a minute about patients and families. And I think we have made progress, but I think COVID kind of moved us back because everything became, you know, so rushed in a way and so urgent and so um, difficult, right? But I think we were moving towards that direction of end user, meaning the patient and the family in the driver's seat, not only at the center, if they want to be at the driver's seat. Not every patient wants to be in the driver's seat. But what I mean is follow their lead. If they want to be in the driver's seat, they're in the driver's seat. If they don't want to be in the driver's seat, then someone else needs to take over for temporarily or whatever that is the situation, right? And, and I, it behooves us as health professionals to do that shift. It's called giveaway power. But the same goes between the same cardiologist that you were talking, and if it was a cardiac surgeon, then even more, right? Or a neurosurgeon, it will be even more between that person and a gerontologist, mm -hmm. or between our ICU nurses and the nurse in, in a nursing home, mm -hmm. right? It behooves us to, to, to number one, equalize power bases, amongst all health professionals, first of all, within, within professions and between professions. And, and remember that we are all here for one reason, mm -hmm. that person that receives our care. Mm -hmm. We are not here for the nurse manager. We are not here for the uh, chief of medicine. We are not here for, we are here for that person receiving care, whether that is palliative care or whether that is giving birth or whether that is whatever for that matter. Mm -hmm. And all of us are here for that and we better get along amongst ourselves because we are here for that person, not for... We are here also for one another, especially in a time of a pandemic, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But we are here for one another. So we survive the pandemic in a way to mm -hmm. serve the people that need our care. Yeah, we are here for one another, and that's the ethos of palliative care. And we have needed that more than ever during the COVID pandemic. This is what, where RNAO has so many issues with those, not a big number, but still the nurse, the few nurses that don't, don't want to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, I had today a, a long interview with CBC on that. Mm -hmm. And they tried to get me in different ways to say something different. And at the end, I said, I already told you four times and I'm not going to say it more. I said, they need to get vaccinated, period. Mm -hmm. but, but what happened if they have hesitancy? That's a conversation for us and the public. The public has a right to have hesitancy. Mm -hmm. Health professionals practice based on science. Mm -hmm. That discussion is over. Mm -hmm. Well, what about their choice? Oh, now we are talking, I said. Their mm -hmm. choice for becoming pregnant, sure, I'm a feminist. But their choice for bringing the virus to a patient, no. Because our first job is to do no harm. Mm 
So, you know, we, we, we get confused sometimes within our own professions and between professions of why we exist, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not when we, I think when we go to the, to, to, to the professions, when we choose the professions, I want to believe we choose them for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I want to believe that, at least most people. And I think most people stay for the right reasons, but the system, you're right, the system has shaped things in a way that we need to some things reclaim. And yes, helping people to die is an everyday job. You're preaching to the choir for sure. You sound like you're speaking from direct experience. Do you have any stories where you were providing palliative care? I was a nurse when I was a clinician in a, for people with acquired brain injuries. I don't know if you ever have taken care, but they're very, very, very interesting people and very challenging and just fascinating because it's a mix of, of knowing very well neuroanatomy, neurology, psychiatry, people, mm-hmm. communication, you name it. And then you can, you know, I was one of those nurses that will come to the shift. Everybody will want only one or two patients because they escalate and they get very, especially at certain stages. And I would say, no, I can have five, no problem. And no problem I had. No, no problem I had because, because it's an art and a science to take care of people with acquired brain injuries. But when the parents, I remember I had a young fellow and the mother was devastated and we were talking and she talked and she talked. And when she was done, I said to her, you know, Miss XX, you will not be the same tomorrow as today. I'm not be the same tomorrow as today. In a year, you certainly will not be the same as today, nor will I. And no, it's Robbie. Robbie was his name. He was delightful. Because we all change. So you will learn. You, he will do quite well, I think. And he will not be the same as before. And some things will be for better. And I did have patients that actually were in big trouble before their brain injury. And after that, when they recovered and did rehab, they were better than before for their families, for them, for everything. So, so I think I think palliative care to me, if 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 I and you can and you know when you see it, right, is when we can help people live their lives meaningfully and fully till the last minute. And hopefully without pain, right? And, and and that should be a given today with pain management. But living life to the fullest till the end versus helping people die, which is what we did as palliative care. And I don't think that's the right approach either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are some of the greatest challenges that nurses face um, along the entire illness journey with people who have progressive illness? What are, in terms of, being able to provide a palliative approach. Yeah, I think the biggest hurdle for nurses, not only in palliative care, in anything, uh, is actually workloads. I don't think it's knowledge for the most. I think it's workloads. I think people do not have the time to do, even if they have the knowledge, even if they have the knowledge to do, to to 
work based on the knowledge they have to their fullest. They're, they're rush, 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 rush. You, can, you, cannot, you cannot do, you cannot also be satisfied with that. This is why some are living, right? I think if we were to give to nurses uh, more time, and I'm not saying triple time, quadruple time, just more time in a way that at least 80% of the time they could do they could do a good job with patients they could do they could they they could know when they're leaving the shift that they did well mm-hmm. and they will be able to put that knowledge to good use and then of course comes education no doubt but that goes for every specialty for for not specialty for every for every condition human condition right whether it is for a mental health um, illness or whether it is or challenge or whether it is for um, palliative care or whether it is for for anything else you do need the knowledge this is why we do the guidelines but the guidelines we do also because we know that nurses so once you graduate first of all even in school doctors and nurses do not get the knowledge about everything. I mean, I study to take care of people with, I study in the nursing program, there was rehab, some courses, I'm talking back then, right? But there was not really much specifics about people with acquired brain injuries, strokes, mm-hmm. for people with strokes, some for people with this, some with acquired brain injuries, that was like, my gosh, this is a super specialty. <laughs> and truly, I did it as a super specialty. I became a CNS for that, a clinical nurse specialist. This is how I came to Canada. But so we can't expect that the four years of education and whatever it is for dogs, six, I think, or whatever it is, will give you everything you need. We can't. So yes, there will need to be, whether you call it specialties or certifications or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. But then still, what do you do 10 years after, 15 years after? And how do you ensure, I think in medicine is more organized, right? That people will maintain their expertise on the field that they have chosen to work, mm-hmm. not just by being there and doing work, mm-hmm. but actually there is foundational knowledge, there is knowledge that science progresses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for So, so I think that's where the guidelines are extremely important and helping them to implement because not all nurses will have the time to go and attain that ongoing knowledge by themselves. And if you structure it systemically in workplaces, then the likelihood that it gets implemented and it gets implemented across all sectors, which is ideal, Mm-hmm. And across all roles is better. Hmm. You agree? You don't? No, I'm just thinking. So it sounds like, yeah, nurses have the knowledge and skill um, to be able to provide a palliative approach. Uh, of course, like anything else, we need to, um, they need to be able to access ongoing education and um, support to be able to keep up to date on what yeah. that looks like, um, but that the but that those aren't the biggest challenges. The biggest challenge is just time workload, workload, time. 
yeah. um, time. Yeah. They don't have the time. So given that that piece isn't going to change quickly. It's going to change. You think? I love oh, your trust me. I love your attitude. <laughs> trust me, it's going to change. Yeah? Did, okay. did you see today that the announcement that everybody said it's not going to change and it did on mandatory vaccination in long-term care? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you you're just need organizations that push the agenda enough. It will change. It, it yeah. needs to change. If not, if not, there will be a tragedy for patients. There is already a tragedy for patients. I mean, what you see in Alberta uh, with ICUs, uh, it was predictable. Mm -hmm. It was predictable. Mm -hmm. I mean, look how nurses and dogs, by the way, were treated by their premier. Mm -hmm. So why are we surprised? You, you get what you build, like in yeah. life. Yeah. Well, this is my whole point about palliative care. We built a kingdom, uh, an exclusive club. <laughs> and I, so I would love to be the fly with you and your colleagues. Well, Doris, we would welcome you to join us in this advocacy anytime. I mean, I wish I could be more fearless like you, to be frank. Um, but can I change topics just a bit? I mean, I wonder, having so much knowledge and experience, how would you advocate to a healthcare provider about your own care? I mean, what's your style like? But let's say this, and you can ask my family doctor, because when, when I interview her yeah. to see if she will be my doctor, yeah, he's fantastic, by the way. My first question was, when the day comes that I will tell you if I have a progressive condition, mm -hmm. I'm done. I had a great life. You have helped me now continue to have a great life, but I'm done for ABC reason I'm done. Will you be willing to do mate with me and she said yes and I said okay well you are my doctor then yeah because I know exactly what I want to do the day that that comes and hopefully will not come soon because I'm having a great life right <laughs> but what I'm trying to tell you is that when people have a good relationship with the practitioner whether that's a nurse or a family doctor or a specialist doctor if they close the conversation on issues that are important to them. This is why I'm saying, give them to be in the driver's seat. Yeah. If they want to be in the driver's seat. My mother, at many years ago, had cancer and she didn't want to know nothing. Dorisita, mm -hmm. you take care of it. Just make sure I don't end up in a hospital. So I took care of her at home till the last minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was my mother. She didn't want to know anything. She didn't want to even know that she was dying. You know what I mean? But so that, that's why the patient needs to be in the driver's seat. But if you as a physician will say, no, we can't talk about that. I'm done with you. Yeah. I think there's a couple things you've said that are really important. Um, so one is, I think we do a terrible job asking patients and families, how much do they want to know about the situation? We never ask. We never. we never ask. So we assume because it's more comfortable for us that we won't talk about that if they're not asking. No, 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 no. They, they, look, I had a colleague that the father didn't want to know anything and the dog was shoving the information. And she called me and she said, I don't know what to do with this guy because he does. My father is suffering. 
doesn't want to hear more. And I said, well, you stand up and you say, sorry, he doesn't want to know more. So we go both ways. Yeah. Latin America, I come from Chile, right? Still mm -hmm. is very patriarchal. So nurses and doctors, the patient doesn't want to know. Only the family will know. The word C, only the family because, right? Here, I think we went the other way. Mm -hmm. I think you need to know everything because you need to plan, you need to... So no, we don't ask, we assume whatever we right. assume. Yeah, we assume. And so we don't invite them to know more if they wanna know more. And if they don't wanna know more, they don't yeah. have to know more. Yeah. And that, that's part of our podcast as well is we need to make sure that we ask, that we invite patients and families to be in the know about their situation. As and much it, as they want. And if they don't, then we we try to offer that to someone in their, yeah. in their inner circle. So yeah. it, we feel pretty strongly that it's it it is beneficial for someone to know what's happening. Yes. It yes. doesn't have to be the patient. I am with you. I'm yeah. with you. But I'm we can't you. have a patient and their entire family completely blindfolded through a serious because then no one's really getting true informed consent. If you well, don't, they cannot also plan. They can't plan. And then everything is a crisis. And then we end up in a big trouble. Yeah. Where do you get your energy from? I'm serious. Like, I, I'm genetic. I swear it's genetic. Is it genetic? I think, I, think my, I never saw my father, except of one time when my mother, I told you that she had cancer. I never saw my father kind of low. And I never saw my mother low. And it's interesting because my father had a, quite the history of his parents being um, uh, killed in the concentration camp. Never, yeah. I, unfortunately, never spoke a lot about that. But yeah, very energetic people both. But also, I have the best life that anybody can have. It's amazing because- I mean it, I mean it. I have a tremendously yeah. supportive family. You know? So how, I, that's a, a tremendously question. fantastic stuff. Like, So how do you stay um, well given that you are such a strong advocate and put yourself out there, your neck on the line, you're, you're fearless actually when you're advocating. I know- Living Israel. Yeah. In Israel. Yeah. Picture this girl at age 19, second year of nursing school, out of three. In those years was three, then I needed to go back for a four year baccalaureate, but picture. So, and she's sleeping in the middle of the night in the dorms, which I escaped after a year because no, I mean, no one normal should have lived in those dorms, but that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's another story. <laughs> and, and the big mama comes at 2, 3 a.m. I don't even remember the time and I'm sleeping and all of a sudden I see this figure in Hebrew that sounds like this and my Hebrew was all broken. Mm -hmm and saying, uh, get up and get dressed. You need to go and open a unit for soldiers with, for soldiers. And I go, I remember the chest pain. I honestly had chest pain. And I remember saying to her, you must be confused. I'm a nursing student. And she said, they said, you can do it. And these are soldiers with minor injuries. Mm -hmm. 
Then I remember standing up dressing with those things that those dresses were all starchy back then. <laughs> and tears going down and me looking in the mirror and all of a sudden me saying, she said, I can do it. It means I can. And that was the end of fear for me. Mm. Never again, never okay. again, never again, right? In the sense that the, if, when, if, when someone on that way believes on you and you need to respond because otherwise remember. So the, the, the nurses, many couldn't get to work because the husbands were in the war. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't leave kids alone sometimes. So the students were used right, left and center. This is why I'm so upset that during this pandemic and in SARS too, they took the students out, not mm -hmm. the medical students, the nursing students. I was outraged about that. I was in the media and I spoke with the ministry and then they returned some, but it's a biggest, a huge disservice to the profession because not only the experience, but you develop leaders. You develop mm -hmm. leaders, leader mm -hmm. system leaders, mm -hmm. right? Courageous leaders. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so life is too short overall, right? For any of us, life is too short and there is no place for fear. There is no place for fear. There is place to make this a better world, end of story. And so, I mean, I have all those uh, PPC people now they give, and, I, and the other thing is, and this is a good, a good uh, strategy for palliative care, by the way, turning challenge into opportunities, turning challenge into a fight. I'm working now with a colleague mm -hmm. that I will not give you too many details that is undergoing treatment. Mm -hmm. And every morning I send them, now you are kicking that beast out, 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 out. And then you are going for a walk and smiling and we are living life. And I'm not a palliative care nurse. Eh? <laughs> I'm a nurse, so I'm a human being. Being a good palliative care person is being a good human being. And we are going to be dismissed. And you know what? Call me in six months. I bet you my life we were going to be, because she's getting all the treatment she needs and I'm, we are doing all the things we need. And, she has the right, she, she has what it takes to kick this thing out, and we will. What kind of nurse do you want by your bedside? Oh, you know, Birgit, look at this Birgit tweets. I think she's as much my mentor as I am her mentor. This is a, first of all, she has expertise from here to the moon, and I definitely want an expert. Mm -hmm. I definitely. The worst that can happen to me with the knowledge I have is to have someone that I doubt their expertise. So mm -hmm. don't put any, any of these people that are now saying my body, my choice, all do not put them next to me because if they do that, maybe they're doubting the medicine for whatever else that I'm supposed to get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So I want people that follow science, not mythology. Mm -hmm. And I want people that will listen to me what I want mm -hmm. and in the constraint of the law of course mm -hmm. uh, to follow my lead I want to be in charge in the last <laughs> minute and if not me then 
I already asked one of my kids, my husband will get upset again because he probably will want me to leave another day and another day and another day. <laughs> That's not me. But your kids know what you want. All of them know. They would know exactly. The exactly. Yeah. Is that because you speak very openly about living and dying and what's important to you? Is yes, until they shush me up. <laughs> <laughs> Here it goes the other way around. <laughs> because, because I'm super healthy, like I don't have, except of calcium and vitamin D, there is nothing in my body. So they don't understand why I talk, but I don't mind talking about that because I think it's, a, it's part of life. Yeah, because that's what we are trying to do with our podcast. It's actually targeted for patients and families, and we're trying to give them the language so that they can initiate the conversation and invite themselves to the party or to the conversation and not only wait for these great very doctors good. or nurses who that's are trained. Very good. We're trying to, to teach them how to be in the lead because they and say, hey, I want to drive. And here's the language to make them feel comfortable and even and even take the hand of the uncomfortable doctor or nurse to say, I'm not afraid of this. We may have expertise on a specific clinical topic, but not in their life. It's their life. On the person. They're the experts life. of their life. They're the ones that can take a standard healthcare system and try to make it more personally for them. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we can talk to the cows come home about person-centered care, but really if we can train patients and families to leech that out of the system, to get, have skills so that they get what they need as a person, then the nurses and doctors and the rest of the healthcare system are going to have to listen. Yeah. Yeah. If enough of them do it. I am there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to teach the secret of, of being fierce, fearless advocates. Yeah, I think, I, 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 uh, Doris, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so yeah. much for your time Delicious. and your insights and your stories. You're inspiring. Thank you, Doris. Thank you. Take care. Keep doing yeah. what you do. Thank you. And more. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.